0: 7654321. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this, you crazy mother.
1: Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Dead Pundits Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And joining me on the line, as usual, is my brilliant co host, Amy Treese. <laughs> Hi. And our guest today, we are very pleased to bring back on the show, uh, Ed Rooksby. Ed Rooksby is a lecturer at Ruskin College. He studies political theory, and he's currently writing a really fascinating book that is many years in the making. And I'm very excited for its release in the coming years. It's called Taking Power, Reform, Revolution, Socialist Strategy. Ed, thanks so much. You're our first repeat guest on uh, Dead Pundits Association. Mm-hmm. How does it feel? Glory. Oh, that sounds, feels amazing. How are you? I'm uh, doing well. We're very pleased to have you back Good. on the show. Thank you. Uh, long, longtime listeners of the show will know that Ed joined me in season one some months ago to talk about socialist strategy and state theory. And in many ways, this uh, show will be uh, – we'll, we, will, we will reprise some of those arguments and extend them further. Um, in the wake of some of the electoral successes in the United States and the Corbyn movement in the UK and elsewhere across the world, uh, the question of socialist strategy is definitely on the minds of socialists and good Marxists and good progressives, I should say, uh, everywhere. And so, this episode, we're going to we're going to try to break down one of the key debates, I think, that really that really um, that really exemplifies, uh, you know, the 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 central questions and dilemmas inside of the socialist movement uh, since since uh, the days of Marx and certainly through the Russian Revolution and Lenin. And, and thereafter. And that is this question of dual power versus something that might be called <laughs> democratic socialism. And uh, I'm not sure that they necessarily have to be in tension, but essentially, what we're going to try to do is break down this theory of dual power and then assess the actually existing history of dual power. And uh, so, yeah, before we do that, Ed, uh, mm. tell us a little bit about your project, uh, this book, Taking Power, Reform, Revolution, and Socialist Strategy. What led you in this direction? It's been a long time coming. And give us a quick little summary of uh, the kind of questions that you're trying to address.
2: Well, it, it comes out of, um, I don't know, sort of, a sort of personal feeling of wanting to get the bottom of something that's always bothered me. So I've always thought of myself as some kind of socialist and gone through a you know, series of evolutions over the years. And one of the biggest influences I had was doing a, a dissertation uh, for my ma and i looked at the question of reform versus revolution and read the classic texts like bernstein and luxembourg and lenin kautsky and so on and um wanted to come down on one side or the other and i couldn't And <laughs> the closest approximation <laughs> to my what i thought was um a book by ralph miliband called marxism and politics where he yeah. uh, essentially comes up with it's not it's not Without his problems, but he comes up with a kind of what he calls a m- sort of muscular reformism or a left reformist strategy, and that seemed to me the most intuitively plausible of those different kind of you know renditions of the classical strategies. And since then, I- I've um, I- I've uh, engaged more with uh, Nicolas Bourdansus and with his conception of the revolutionary road to democratic socialism, which he calls it slightly um, perhaps provocatively in places. And trying to think through some of the questions that I think get glossed over in this debate i don 't think I' have been uh, quite pinpointed about what the state is, where does capitalist power lie um, what are the limits to reform what are the kind of what 's the feasibility and practicality of revolutionary rupture? what does that mean today so I mean, so my book focuses on those kind of questions so i 'm going to start with a an overview of the classic dilemmas of the second international uh, and the kind of the confrontation between the revisionists and in the commas and the kind of orthodox Marxists mm. uh, and then move to an analysis of reformism and its problems historic, uh, theoretically and practically historically and then to uh, what I'm going to broadly call Leninism and uh, look at some of the theoretical and concrete problems that that encountered in practice before trying to basically, I think like what I can I can call it now is that I resisted this term for a long time, trying to resuscitate left Eurocommunism or something similar. You know, there's sort of, um, uh, in fact, it's almost like a, a sort of centrism of the old Second International, a position <laughs> that, that refuses parliamentary reformism on the one hand, but also uh, refuses the idea of the kind of, you know that the absolute alternative of, of insurrection and total total transformation uh, of the politics and the economy. So that's where I am, hoping to get this book done at some point in the next well before I die. That would be nice. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, moving move there.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is really exciting. I got to say, you know, I, I told you off air, and and uh, I sort of like. Uh, I mentioned this in, in our first episode that we did together. It's like, you know, I, the reason why I wanted to bring you back on and the reason why I love your work so much is if if, if my field, uh, you know, was was more explicitly political theory, political science, like that would be the kind of book that I would love to write. And, you know, maybe maybe I'll add on to it someday. But for now, uh, it's in capable hands with you. And I'm really excited for you to develop some of these questions. I mean, if m- m- not only just because I'm interested in them broadly, you know, in an academic intellectual sense, but because they're some of the most pressing political questions that I think that the socialist movement faces today. And and you look around, and, and not to denigrate anyone who's who's doing intellectual work these days, because I think it's all worthwhile in its own right, but if you look around, there just aren't enough people asking these questions. So we sort of throw oh, yeah. around these, this notion of reform versus revolution. We sort of, everyone right now is excited, I think, about the socialist upsurge in electoral politics and movement, this kind of inside-outside strategy that I try to articulate here on Dead Pundit Society. And yet there's very little work that's being done to really uh, try to uh, address these questions in a systematic way, be it historical, theoretical, or, mm. or strategic or otherwise. And I think you know, this book is really exciting. So I wanted to bring you on the show to do something that's very risky. And to your credit, very few scholars will agree to do it, to do it which is to talk <laughs> about a tentative uh, work in progress. It's very risky. <laughs> mm. so, uh, so, so let's do it now. One of the sure. central questions I think that motivates this show is what is left of revolutionary socialism. What what remains, I should say, <laughs> what remains of revolutionary socialism today? I myself came into the world of Marxism as a revolutionary socialist. I don't like to talk too much about my own personal biography on the show, but some folks will already know this. And I was sort of seduced by that in the pre-occupy political scene, which was markedly different than the one we find ourselves in today, in terms of prospects. And uh, this was in the the era of Obama and before, uh, which so so the the left had a very very different character that was still marked, I think, in the sort of anti globalization movement of the late '90s and early aughts. And uh, so this, this is near and dear to my heart. And a lot of these people will point to uh, Lenin and his State and Revolution book uh, that was very instrumental in uh, granting people an understanding of the state, class formation, and how to, uh, quote unquote, smash the state and achieve a, a proper socialist society. So yeah. give us a quick gloss. What, what is the theory of dual power? How did it operate in Lenin's time? And how has it been transformed today? And then we'll sort of zero in on these themes as we go.
2: Well, it emerges in practice, really. I mean, for when you look at the development of Lenin's thought um, before uh, the experience of the February Revolution in Russia, uh, the overthrow of the Tsar and the implementation, you know, the the coming to being a provisional government. Mm -hmm. Um, Lenin doesn't talk about uh, Soviets, uh, doesn't talk about dual power particularly. He seems to have a, a fairly sort of standard orthodox Second International. Uh, understanding of what um, socialism might mean, it seems to be a sort of you know process of <clears throat> centralisation of economic management in the hands of the state, somehow in the hands of the proletariat, you know, uh, probably via the hands of the party which represents them. But it's the experience of the Soviets, and going back to the experience of 1905, when there was a similar process of contestation from, from Soviets in Russia and the major urban centres that gets Lenin thinking about what's the actual, what's the concrete process unfolding in Russia right now? Uh, how is working class ex- uh, power expressing itself? What's, what What are the kind of major, what are the pivots of contestation between the reactionary power or the counter-revolution on the one hand and the revolution on the other? How do we weld together the, the revolutionary forces of the peasantry and the proletariat um, in Russia and the, um, he's won quite late in the day to the idea of Soviets. It's only in, I think it's in actually in the process of writing what becomes the pamphlet State and Revolution that Lenin rips up his previous, he's going to write a book, I think he's attacking Bukharin actually and Panakuk, who are, who are taking a, a more pro-Soviet line and, and Lenin's trying to say that the Soviets are just, it's just syndicalism, this sort of thing. And he switches and he flips and he says, no, actually, this is the secret. And he goes back to what Marx and Engels, Marx particularly, wrote about uh, the Paris Commune, and seems to have an epiphany and realizes that um, this is the that the Soviets are like the Paris Commune. This is the form of uh, of what working class power is going to look like. It's the this, it's what Engels talks about as being, you know, this this is the this is the dictatorship of the proletariat. It looks like the, the Paris Commune, and so his his, his theory of dual power comes out of that during the kind of fraught circumstances of the February Revolution its aftermath. And he, he realises that um, what's happening is a sort of process of polarisation where counter-revolutionary forces are increasingly cohering on the old state apparatus, mm-hmm. its ministries, its police force, you know, its bureaucracy. And the revolutionary powers are coalescing around the Soviets and so he argues that what's emerging is a situation of dual power, a sort of contestation for legitimacy among the people. You know, where does real power lie? Is it with the Soviets or is it with the Constituent Assembly and the old state? And Lenin says, well, we've got to we've got to throw our weight behind the Soviets." And what, in following through the logic of this, what does it mean? Well, it means that the Soviets is the, is the kind of embryonic form of. The, the dictators of the proletariat and beyond that socialism and communism. And we need to, there needs to be some resolution of this dual power situation. One of these two powers, they can't coexist forever. One of them has got to overwhelm and destroy the other. So it must lead to insurrection and to the destruction of one of these two poles of that dual power, of that counterposition. And that becomes the model of the, the October Revolution, where at least in, you know, in the kind of slogans, at least what's happening there is the Soviets, and the, demo- the form of democracy it embodies, uh, bursts through the limits of bourgeois democracy and overwhelms the old institutions, and they kind of you know are, are obliterated, and the new power of the of the of the Soviets, uh, i.e. the proletariat, and in alliance with the peasantry, is now the the kind of sovereign power. In, in Russia, and this embodies the dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, and this model of revolutionary change, it sort of becomes like a kind of general law. This is the way it's going to look like in every revolution, a German revolution, in any kind of British revolution, as the revolution spreads from Russia with Trotsky and Lenin. Lenin's one to Trotsky's view of permanent revolution. Uh, this, is the, this is the form it's going to take as the, a as the Russian revolution in the weak you know, uh, week of the imperialist chain spreads into Germany and spreads beyond into Western Europe, it's going to take the form of dual power. And so that Leninist tradition coalesces at at that point, it becomes a sort of, um, it becomes the core commitment
1: of the Leninist perspective that we still see today. You know, this is the form that revolution takes. Right, right. So, I mean, that was an excellent summary of of, of the kind of uh, you know the historical basis, the alleged historical basis of dual power. I don't, I don't want to alarm any of my listeners, though. Uh, I mean, I think that like we have some people there who are who are hanging on to every word, who have really delved into the history of the Russian Revolution. Uh, perhaps you know they caught up on it with China Miéville's October book that came out last year and the hundredth anniversary of the of nineteen seventeen events. Uh, and the, but there are also going to be others out there who are just completely confused about everything that. That we just put forward so i don't i don't i don't want anyone to feel like this episode is going to be over their heads uh there will be some historical you know sort of uh, allusions and allegories but uh but moving forward we're going to be uh, much more practically oriented and we're going to spell this out in in theoretical terms and in practical terms that i think every all of my listeners uh, you know should 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 be able to understand uh but just, just moving forward um I think one of the central things that we want to spell out for people in, in the development of dual power that that will be relatable to anyone who's listening is this transition. Uh, this transition in the take us take us to the October Revolution. Mm. Very very you know schematically understandably, uh, take us to the October Revolution and tell us how that uh, sort of progressed.
2: Well, so so the background is that Russia. And the legitimacy of the Tsarist state before the February Revolution is in tatters because of the, of the virtual collapse of the, of, uh, and the impoverishment of Russia because of the First World War. And so there's mutiny amongst the soldiers on the front, and there's uh, all sorts of hardship amongst the people. There's economic, more or less economic collapse. And so the Tsarist, the, the Tsarist regime is overthrown, and a new um, kind of liberal democracy is brought into being via moderate, inverted, commas, moderate socialists, which coalesces under several iterations of the provisional government. But Kerensky is the kind of main figure, a socialist who becomes the leader um, for a while. And he's he's the guy that gets overthrown in the October Revolution, mainly because what the the Bolsheviks are very clever about is they, they, they kind of distill... The grievances of the people into a slogan about bread, peace, and land, you know what do we what do we want we want We want people to be fed. Uh, we want the war to end now. we can't keep on fighting it, which the provisional government is doing. It's carrying on the war uh, against Germany in particular. and we want to redistribute land to the peasants because there's all sorts of peasant you know unrest at the time and essentially, the insurrection in October is organized to coincide with I think it's the second congress of the all russian congress of soviets and they sort of um the
1: second and final conference <laughs> no there are others but it's perhaps the last <laughs> the last actual uh, right. proper i i, I um, suppose that is a, co- a controversial uh, claim yeah <laughs>
2: Yeah, but yeah. so so the, the the seizure of power itself is is pretty easy. Um, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. the the old regime's demoralized, and the insurrection proceeds with with ease. There's hardly any blood, uh, as far as I remember. Hardly anyone gets killed. It's just a, a question of seizing the key installations of power in in the capital, St. Petersburg, and in the other big cities of Moscow. And what comes to power is the Bolsheviks at the head of a, a regime which says it is basing itself on the power of the Soviets. And soon after that, the Constituent Assembly, the Parliament of Russia, is abolished um, because it's seen to be superfluous, because this new form of democracy has emerged a much more democratic form of the Soviets, which are kind of councils of people, sometimes based on localities, they're kind of geographic units, but often they're interspersed with, they merge with factory committees, which are based on kind of workplace-based democracy, which is really, in a way, the powerhouse of the revolution in in many ways Mm -hmm. and also the committees of of soldiers is very important of course and at the head of this new government is the bolsheviks but they have alliance an alliance with the left srs the left socialist revolutionaries who are a a group who have a, a base in the peasantry much more than they do with the urban proletariat but it is a kind of a coalition of forces that come to power and they declare the overthrow of the bourgeois regime and they embark on the process of constructing the dictatorship of the, of the proletariat, sort of referencing, I guess, uh, Lenin's ideas that have been put forward relatively recently in the state and revolution. So that's the kind of blueprint, if you like, the idea of a conciliar a kind of council structure, a kind of pyramid of councils where grassroots organs of democracy elect delegates to a higher organ, say, you know, industry level or um, city level, or municipal level, and then another one at regional level until they reach the top, which is the, the Congress of, of Soviets. And this is supposed to be the kind of sovereign body of a new form of democracy, which embodies workers' power and starts to undo... The distinction between politics, if you like, and economics, you know, where, where politics, these councils are based often in the workplace. So it kind of breaks down that classic liberal distinction between the realm of democracy, which holds only in relation to politics in relation to a sort of uh, quite circumscribed area of life, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but in which economics and the workplace is the realm of the private, you know, the realm, the realm in which you're kind of bossed around by the capitalists. Um,
1: and that's, that's, the, that's the sort of motivating idea so the, theoret- the theory and strategy of dual power emerges in the in the context of the the Russian Revolution. Uh, Lenin sort of uh, you know uh, refines these notions in in a, in a very real sense. Uh, one of the directions I want to head to first before we talk about how revolutionary socialism is manifested in our in our contemporary context is there's a fantastic book by this man named T. H. Rigby. He's kind of in the old guard, I've been told, of Russian scholars. This kind of very uh, academic, uh, hey, historically hey, 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 driven. Hey. Uh, yeah, he's yeah, yeah.
0: Technically, he's an Australian scholar. I just want to make sure okay, that he's my Australian. fellow yeah, countryman gets proper be. attribution.
1: <laughs> he's a proud Aussie, and uh, he wrote a fantastic book uh, several decades ago. It's called Lenin's Government, and it makes a really powerful and important uh, case. I think it's, it, it it revises the uh, accepted account that is still very much bandied about on, in left circles. About just what the nature was of that Russian Revolution. The story goes that uh, after the October Revolution, whether folks know exactly how that happened or how that didn't happen is is not important. But the story is that after the October Revolution, the Bolsheviks uh, seized power and they smashed the the old state and they replaced it with a state of the people. Uh, or, or maybe even a non-state, you might say, a sort of direct de- democratic post post-communist state. Uh, Rigby tells a very different story about what Lenin's government really looked like there, and this isn't this isn't a hyper-politicized account. This is a very dispassionate historical view, and I think he, I think Rigby has a a pretty positive assessment of Lenin. I would say he certainly finds yeah. him to be a very, you know, he has a certain kind of. Ingenuity about him. Mm-hmm. He's uh, very brilliant, and he takes a lot of risks, and he understands large government bureaucracies and institutions and, and how to how to run things. But he tells a very different story about how that took place. Tell, give us a quick yeah. um, a quick rundown and, and, and what this means to you in terms of yeah. our understanding of of what dual power looks like in practice.
2: Yeah. So. What Rigby does, and you're right, he's
1: not at all hostile
2: to. He's quite, he's quite impressed by Lenin, and Lenin was an impressive guy, you know, incredibly, incredibly talented um, person. But what emerges from Rigby's book, which is a sort of painstaking reconstruction from um, archival sources from Russia, of uh, he looks uh, looks through documents from the time and reconstructs the actual kind of institutional structure of Lenin's government, and the picture that Rigby builds up doesn't look at all like the apparent intention in the state and revolution so there's a sort of the, the, the normal story if you like you know from those sympathetic to the Bolsheviks is that what happened is that the Bolsheviks tried to create something approximating what Lenin describes in the state and revolution, you know, uh, an ultra-democratic state based on the Soviets, which is no longer a state in the proper sense of the word because it's in the process of withering away. Uh, All it needs to do is go through a necessary process of, you know, holding down the counter-revolution, training the people in uh, methods of administration, involving people in running of their own communities and so on. And the story goes that it was, you know, it it, it was sort of um, tragically snuffed out by the civil war, by the counter-revolution, by the isolation of Russia, by the failure of the revolution to spread to Germany. And the Bolsheviks are increasingly forced to centralise power and they degenerate and they become more and more militaristic. And they make you know, virtues out of necessity. So you find Trotsky, for example, at the height of war communism, saying all sorts of horrible things about, you know, how militarising labour and how using really harsh dictatorial measures in factories It might seem horrible, but actually it's a step on the road to communism, you know, mm. and the people who don't understand this is because they are kind of stupid liberal, petty bourgeois people, or you can just soft and this kind of thing. And then along comes Stalin, and then the whole thing kind of reaches the apogee of uh, degeneration, if you like. That's not a contradiction to it. But the reality that um, Rigby shows is that from virtually day one of the revolution, what emerges is a state regime that's almost, in many ways, in terms of the central bureaucracy, the central structures, is almost identical to the provisional government structures. And via that is almost identical to the structures that prevail under Tsarism. So what the what Lenin does is he kind of sets up a structure based on the old government ministries. In fact, at first the so-called so one of the things they do is they rename these ministries commissariats. And the ministers become commissars, people's commissars, right? So they re- they rename these structures, but they don't actually change the the, right. the actual substance of these structures. Mm-hmm, the first mm-hmm. the commissars operate from the Smolny Institute, where the Bolsheviks are based, and they gradually sort of make forays into the old government ministries, the old buildings, often accompanied by red red uh, red guards. And gradually kind of assert their authority over the old staff and the old structures, the old buildings. And these become the commissariats. And Lenin gathers these commissars together into what's effectively a kind of a kind of semi-cabinet called Sovnakom, which is the Soviet of People's Commissars, which is which becomes effectively the the kind of nucleus of institutional power in under Lenin. Uh, The term Soviet, by the way, is slightly misleading there because um, Soviets are Russian for council. Doesn't necessarily mean Soviet in
1: terms of proletarian democracy. Right, the, the the czarist regime had Soviets. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah. it, was a, it was just it's a it's just a Russian word that doesn't as as many times you know these words are Russian and and uh, those who 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 don't speak the language will presume that they have some kind of special jargon uh, kind of connotation jargonish connotation whereas they're just kind of more regular words, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, there are other there are other parallels I think in in the Leninist sort of uh, canon that, that operate in the same way. Like vlast, for example, yeah. is, uh, is is really not a special word necessarily but it does have a certain connotation but anyway yeah. I digress that's for the uh, the Soviet heads out there, the historical uh, nerds but anyway, you're right yeah so so es- effectively they you know the, the czarist regimes that they were ministers under the sort of Bolshevik government uh, they Lenin's government they became commissars. And uh, th- they took on the the functions of any government: agriculture, the military. Uh, Trotsky was the, was the commissar of foreign affairs. Uh, he would have been in, in the you know uh, the foreign minister or the department, the, the secretary of state in the United States. Yeah, which is kind of it's almost kind of cute to think of Trotsky as the you know as this as the uh, secretary of state or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah, although he never turned up to meetings apparently. Uh, funny, yeah, fairly, so fairly, he didn't turn up the meetings. But I mean, it's just kind of like uh, it has a certain kind of like uh, banality to it, you know. It's just kind mm-hmm. of like because uh, we imagine these people as engaged in this in this very um, exceptional uh, revolutionary experiment. But in, yeah. in reality, in the first couple of years, uh, the first several years, even they were engaged in in the same kind of statecraft that that any any government uh, or yeah. ministry should needs to be engaged in.
2: Yeah, it's it's. I mean, one of the kind of marks of the kind of amazing historical figure of Lenin, in a way, is the way he moves seamlessly from being the sort of great sort of um, you kind know, of artist of of revolution, sort kind of romantic, um, very you know, kind of very sensitive, kind of maestro of trying to coalesce these different forces and, and sort of you know channel them towards a particular objective. He moves from that to being to becoming the consummate bureaucrat. His fat spends a lot of his time before he finally dies, chairing meetings uh, and doing things like trying to keep people at meetings just to speak within three minutes and not rabbit rabbit on. Trying to keep agenda items down to less than (laughs) sixteen items, things like that. (laughs) Setting up new subcommittees to deal with um, routine matters. So one of one of the first things that that Sovnacom does is it realizes it's got so much fucking bureaucracy that so many of the ministers are not turning up to meetings that they need to get rid of a lot of the business that's snarling things up because they're staying up until in the Smolny Institute, they're staying up until two, three, four in the morning, just getting through the agenda. Um, After a day of, you know, being in the commissariat, they then go back to Smolny and sit in Sovnakom meetings. So he sets up something called a little Sovnakom, which is to kind of be like a, a kind of screening standing committee uh, that tries to take away the lesser in items to get keep them off Sovnikov's agenda. And interesting, that's, that's something that Rigby says is probably something they got from the old Tsarist officials who were co-opted into the new Soviet government, you know, because that's exactly the structure that the Tsarist government had. It had its council of ministers and then a little standing sub, little council of ministers who dealt with these problems. And that's a sort of um, a kind of epitomizes the process going on here. The, the, the thing that emerges from Rigby's story is that the structure of Lenin's state was not absolutely identical, but in its major features, its processes, uh, um, it, its, it's uh, institutional links, uh, its overall shape, it's almost identical to previous governmental structure. And so, what flows kind of from, from this reality. Is that the idea that the old state, the old state apparatuses were smashed and replaced with something completely new is just not true. What happened is that the old in the old ministries and often you know completely the old the, the, the existing staff were absorbed into a new government where there's sort of there was, there was a kind of change over the top if you like. Of course, they've got very different intentions and their policies are very, very different to the prov- provisional government, so to the Tsarist government. But in terms of structures and procedures and the way it operates, it looks like there's much more continuity than there was anything approaching some sort of absolute smashing of the bourgeois state.
0: Yeah, it's like uh, as reductionist as this may sound, like, um, correct me if this is kind of way off base, but you know the um, aphorism like Old wine in new bottles. This almost is like mm. the, the the opposite of that. It's kind of like a new wine in you know the yeah, older exactly. a, yeah. bottles. Like Absolutely. does that does that sound yeah. about right?
2: That's that's a good way of putting it. That's what seems to emerge.
0: Okay, cool. So
2: so, so it's not exactly the same. No, because of course they these these parallel structures as well. They're as obvious. And there's the Congress of Soviets. At the top of that is the Central Executive Committee, which is kind of does the day-to-day running of, because the, the Congress is hundreds of people, and there's no way that they can, you know, kind of administer things on a day-to-day basis. So they elect a, uh, uh, some some delegates to kind of make the day-to-day decisions. And the initial decree um, of the new government, which says something about it tries to work out its new structures. It says that the commissariats have got to be immersed in the mass organisations, got, they've got to be immersed in the revolutionary mass organisations of people. So there's some sense in which the commissariats should be democratised and somehow organically linked with the Soviets. And what, what they, they appear to be doing formally in terms of what they're announcing is that the sovereign body on, and this new regime is actually the CEC, the, the Central Executive Committee of the Congress of Soviets. So that the, the kind of sovereign power of the new regime is the Soviets, with Sovnarkom, uh, Lenin's committee, acting as a kind of executive, administrative arm, dealing with day-to-day business, you know, kind of uh, sorting things out. But it, almost as if that's um, a temporary structure. It's part, it's part of the apparatus that is going to wither away, uh, leaving the, the Soviets as the slightly you know, longer-lasting institutions. But that's how it formally looked. In reality, actually, there's very little evidence that the commissariats are immersed in the mass organisations of the working people. There's very little evidence that the CEC or the Congress had any influence, really, over Sovnarkom. But It's formally given the power to approve appointments to the commissariats. You know, they should vote on who they want to be, the, the minister of this and the minister of that. In reality, that doesn't happen. And Lenin actively subordinates the CEC and seems to be quite hostile to it in many ways because he appears to, to have a fear of, or a hostility towards what he calls anarcho-syndicalism and a kind of sectionist tendency. He thinks that the Soviets are undisciplined, they'll tend to fragment, uh, they'll tend to be disputatious. And what you really need is a some, you know, body of people who get things done. Um, yeah. and who who are the heirs of the true sort of legacy of marx and you know they've got the they understand marx, they understand the science of Marxism and so on and it 's hard not to see a certain i don 't know a certain cynicism there this is, this is before the the civil war sets in by the way you know some people say that the centralization of the state under Lenin was entirely because they the plans to turn Russia into something like a commune state were derailed by, you know, the intervention and the white armies and so on. But this happens long before the civil war really sets in. Mm -hmm. Um, And it does look like Lenin really does intend to sideline the Soviets and to make them, if not ornaments, and they do have a lot of power at local level, but they're certainly subordinated to the bureaucracy, uh, the central apparatuses of government. And that central bureaucracy is the... Operators that looks almost identical to the Tsarist
1: state, you know that state which which hasn't been smashed at all, right? And I, I just I would like to emphasize just as, as maybe an aside or a support or something like that that like I get it, Lenin's impulse there. I mean, I get I get it. Like if if anyone has ever found themselves in a leadership position of a large and unwieldy and fractious organization. They will understand exactly why Lenin sort of had what we, we what we might call an elitist kind of impulse to sort of direct the business of statecraft and governance as against these kind of warring factions within the Soviets who who were prepared to kind of burn the whole thing down if if things didn't go according to plan or, or whatever because at the end of the day an organization, a state, an institution has a certain kind of mission and the show has to go on. You know, in, in a kind of cynical, yeah, albeit cynical sort of way, regardless of the kind of shenanigans and the in the fights that are happening th- at the level of the base. Um and, and I, I'm not proud to say that. That's not something that I you know sort of like puff out my chest and make a virtue of. I'm not I'm not I'm not making a virtue of of a, of a kind of elitist Uh, orientation to power, but this is the kind of pitfall and contradiction that's inherent, that's internal to, to, to power, to, to, uh, you know, to, to guiding and marshalling the energies of large groups of people. Mm. Um, You can't avoid this by, by just having the right principles and and operating under under the, under the right slogans. Like these are built in, in in many in many ways. So so in case you know folks just think that what we're trying to do here is just slander Lenin as this you know this authoritarian as this cynic as this this centralizer of power, this elitist or whatever, I'm certainly not. I mean I don't want to speak for you Ed, but uh but I don't know what, what do you make of that consideration? It's almost like, you know, <clears throat> Lenin is taking under his own Lenin is taking under his own power this kind of uh, mm. this this role of the what we would now call the relative autonomy of the state. Mm.
2: Well, he's nothing if not, not a pragmatist, yeah, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's actually hard to see what he could have done otherwise in practice. And I, I guess one of the lessons that can be drawn from this is the necessity of some form of kind of bureaucracy, the necessity of some form of centralisation of political power, uh, the necessity of some form of what we might call a state, you know, e- even in post-revolutionary situation that you can't move immediately to, if if at all, to the sort of decomposition of centralised power and the sort of devolution of power to grassroots organs. And this is something I think that Ralph Miliband talks about quite lucidly in his critique of state and revolution, which is that there's always a necessary tension between what he calls direction and necessity of direction and and democracy. There's always a necessary tension between Giving people power on the one hand, and also making sure that what you don't get is total chaos. You know, you need you need to have some kind of mechanism for aggregating opinion, interests for for forming some kind of consensus, if you like, uh, uh, or majority consensus, and then imposing that, f- uh, hopefully through some kind of um, agreement through some democratic means. But you can't ever get beyond that tension, and so that perhaps what Marx and Engels weren't very good at was thinking through the problems of what they called the public power that they thought would exist under communism. You know, there's something, they they talk about something vague that will exist even under communism, the necessity of some kind of public power, but that wouldn't, so it wouldn't be a state in the proper sense of the word. And they're a little bit slippery about, you know, in what way is this not a state? Well, it's not a state because it's not a class state. A state is by, by definition, a class state and every class society has its own state and every state is inherently the state of the dominant class but the public power because it operates in communism there's no classes under communism it can't be a class state so it can't be a state it's something else but it's it's a very slippery concept and something i don't think they ever convincingly kind of got to the bottom of And certainly, I I think that Lenin takes on that legacy, you know, that sort of ambiguous legacy of Marx and Engels, and tries to square this circle all the time of wanting a commune, non-state, but also wanting to centralise power, because of the necessity of a period of the dictatorship of the proletariat. You know, you you need to have uh, some sort of way of holding down the enemies of the revolution, while also you disintegrate the old state apparatus. And I think the way he, he resolves that, the Lenin squares that circle, is really through a form of uh, what you've called before, Adams, another situation kind of magical thinking. You know, it's yeah. a sort of yeah. it's a sort of rhetorical solution to the problem, which isn't really a solution. And I think that, in a way, that's what he's doing in the state and revolution: is he's trying to square a circle, and he doesn't
1: quite do it. <laughs> Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I I was also, like, there's also something just kind of, like, amazingly poetic in the idea that he's such a, like, ruthless fucking pragmatist and yet at the same time he's also this symbol for, like, revolutionary Marxism. It's sort of like this, yeah, I guess as you said, like, contradiction or just, yeah, tension that's going on there. And yet
2: mm.
0: people sure. seem to kind of deify one half of that image, and and ignore the other half. It seems
1: right, right. And it's not about vindicating or denigrating the man or his actions. It's about understanding the challenges. No, you're absolutely right. I'm not. No, I'm, not sort of, I'm just adding on to it. It's about um, it's about understanding the challenges yeah. that he and his in his comrades faced. And, and thinking through you know how they handled it and and what the implications were in in in, the, in terms of how they how they did handle it um but Amy you had some interesting reflections on sort of like how what dual power looks like today and i wanted to move beyond uh, dual power in the days of lenin we've been going on for, we could we could continue this for hours and it would be very fruitful but unfortunately i have to move on the main purpose of the show is to outline kind of like what remains of this revolutionary socialist dual power kind of approach today and and you know i think spoiler alert i think the answer is not much <laughs> to put it to put it uh, quite uh, glibly uh, and i hope we'll fill that out and justify that to the skeptics uh, as we as we move on
0: i just was thinking as ed was speaking i think it's really interesting and something that's not really taken account of Is the fact that Lenin came to that conclusion that this was a worthy strategy once certain modes of power looked like they were already taking shape? So, am I correct, Ed, in in my understanding that like he sort of appraised the status quo and said, "Look, like the most productive move is to take advantage of this particular moment and then leverage." yeah the, okay right so
2: that's right yeah and i, t- I mean I, to me that's not necessarily a fault you know that's I is ability yeah. to be flexible and to sort of yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, not to not to be too dogmatic about things and to, to sort of be quite sensitive to the actual the way in which the real movement and the real struggle is going and trying to find a way to sort of intervene in the in the in the, in the concrete reality rather than trying to impose a kind of schematic model no, definitely didn't, didn't work.
0: Definitely, but I think
2: and the, the irony there is that I think that's what contemporary, you know, kind of lenders do is that they they've lost that sort of that flexible pragmatism in a sense, and they're they're seeking to impose a, a schematic vision drawn from Russia, October 1917, uh, into very different situations.
0: Yeah, I'm like I'm so glad you. Sorry, I'm just sort of all formulating this as we go, but like. I think the thing that is, at least to my mind, the largest gap there is the idea that like, when people now speak about dual power, they're not talking about leveraging existing power or organizations or forces out there in the world. They're talking about generating things bottom up, like from scratch, right? And so I think it's critically important to then to at least take heed of the fact that If Lenin's version of dual power is either tacitly or explicitly informing contemporary adherents of that sort of strategy, and I've I've not seen any account for the fact that Lenin's response was one to an existing set of forces yes. in the world and he was able to to utilize them to his advantage. But there's no, within yes. any contemporary versions, there's no methodology by which constructing said institutions would happen, right? Mm. So it's, it's like it's, as you said, like it's this idea of transposing strategy from a totally different context into, into our world in ways yes. that I don't think they've accounted yes. for the specificity. Between the two, and, 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 do, and
2: so it's a kind of to speak of the dual power strategy, the dual, dual power scenario mm, today, mm. right, is an abstraction.
0: Completely, it's, it necessary. doesn't exist. Yeah,
2: those all those that, that dynamic is no, is nowhere in existence. I think we can maybe be a bit too categorical about. It. I mean, my, my feeling is there's a kernel of truth here, which is that if you look at and a very very substantial one actually, if you look at any real upsurge in left-wing struggle, where things get brought to the brink of power, you do see uh, a confrontation in certain forms. I'm not sure it's a kind of uh, an absolute confrontation, but you, you do see this sort of uh, tension, at least, between the institutions of the existing state and the particular repressive apparatuses and some form of insurgent power among the people, right? So you, you So that sort of thing occurs... Historically, in various situations, um, you know, think about Germany in the, the revolutionary situation of the uh, First World War. Uh, think about Portugal when they dictated the dictatorship was overthrown. Think about Chile under Allende, right? You get a sort of a, a relationship, a sort of slight a tension between state apparatuses and organs of mass democracy. In that, in that case, the, cordon, the cordons. And also, to some extent, in Greece, you know, what you get—the height of the social mobilizations—is you get right cops beating people up in um, in the square in, in Athens, uh, and perhaps even similarly more, you know, in um, uh, in Egypt, in Tahrir square. square, you know, you, yeah. you get you get a confrontation between the repressive apparatuses and the the people. If I but li- you, you, sorry, go on, you.
0: Yeah. No, no, you finish your point. Sorry.
2: Well, what I was going to say is that. Um, but they, they don't all follow that logic of February, November 1917. That that sort of situation of dual power, if you like, in those other examples was never a carbon copy of what happened in Russia. And often it was only a sort of echo of that sort of relationship. We I mean, think in particular about the Allende experience in Chile from 1970 to 1973. What you get is the election of a radical left-wing government, which in itself is the stimulus for the creation of organs of popular power, which are expressly set up to defend the Enday's government, right? And of course, there's a, there's it's not a completely harmonious relationship because Enday is continually under pressure to to repress workers who are taking over their factories, and is continually under pressure to disarm sort of various forms of workers' militias that spring up to defend themselves from fascist gangs and things like that. So it's not a harmonious relationship, but it's not a totally antagonistic one either. And it it seems to me to show that there is something to that dynamic of of struggle which leads to a kind of polarisation, which leads to something like two sites of legitimacy which are not wholly comfortable with each other, you know, the, the existing legitimate state and the new... Institutions of power, which are de facto a challenge to that legitimacy in some ways, but it's not clear to me that those institutions of dual powers will always appear. That they can somehow spring out of nothing. That they follow some kind of plot, or that they necessarily come into direct violent confrontation on on, on block, you know, between the, the the people's organs, if you like, on the one hand and state organs right, right. on the other. I just don't think it's as neat as that. Uh, and so that's where I'm with someone, I guess we'll talk about him a bit later, is with Polansus's vision of, such as it is, kind of vague vision, but very, very um, yeah. fruitful and, and uh, interesting one of this sort of articulation uh, between a movement within the state and a movement outside.
1: Yeah. yeah. Let's, you know, let's move to that now. Um, let's move to that now. We we've, were... Um we're, we're kind of getting along up there in time. The piece I think that you're referring to most explicitly is in the Palancis Reader, which I have recommended to many, many listeners uh, of the show, uh, both both, uh, you know, the folks who have reached out to me asking for more information, more readings on Palancis and state theory. I think it's a fantastic volume and collection. But in the very end, at the very back of that volume, there is an interview with a French fourth internationalist by the name of um, Henri uh, Weber. And it's characterized Henri Weber. Henri Weber? Some some debate about exactly how to pronounce his name in in any case. Uh, I'm just American. Uh, So it's really – it's characterized as an interview. It's really a debate, and it's a fantastic and important debate, particularly in the context of the question that we're trying to take up today on this episode is – you know what what's what remains of revolutionary socialism and and where are the holes and the pitfalls and the contradictions and what you're seeing in this interview is a debate between a revolutionary socialist and between Poulanzas who is something like what what you know Ed you would call a, a left euro communist this sort of inside outside democratic socialist you know democratic transition to socialism um, that 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 we're trying to sort of develop here on the show. I mean you can tell it's in Kuwait because we don't even have a fucking name for it. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's step one uh, We'll get there eventually <laughs> Ed, you'll have to do that in your book. you have to name this thing it's on you it's on you I've been trying to do yeah, i've been trying this a for a year and I've failed I multiple times yeah. but uh, you know if you fail, be sure to fail out in the open so you know no one ever has to hold you accountable for it <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there are historical antecedents for
1: this, you know. So there's
2: a there's a centrist current in yeah. the Second International, exemplified particularly by Kautsky. Uh, but the trouble is that the yeah. I mean, I'm not a big fan of Kautsky for various reasons. But uh, the trouble with centrism as a term is that it's it's been it's already, it's already been claimed. Um, by the enemies of centrism as it's now a term of of it became a term of insult under Trotsky. Yeah. So if you're a centrist, you know, it means you're a vacillating, petty bourgeois, etc. etc. so Someone you're doesn't fence, really understand fence, what Marx really meant. So and that's the problem with drawing on those old terms is that they've often right, got right. a lot of baggage So this
1: interview to is really brilliant because you're seeing these kind of positions play out. If the interview was in uh, around I think nineteen seventy seven or thereabouts, that's when it was published. And so it's it's a far more contemporary case. Mm of some, an adherent of dual power, a sort of modified contemporary version of dual power going up against a mind like Palantzis. And some, some of the central sort of critiques that mm. Polancis has of Weber and vice versa are incredibly illustrative for the kinds of debates that are internal to the left right now. And so what the way that Weber characterizes, I would say, the, the dual power is a form of kind of contrast state and the the most fascinating, one of the more fascinating uh, aspects yes. of that exchange is when Henri Weber takes Ponces to task and says, "Yeah, but y- what what you're saying is not unique. We revolutionary socialists also believe that institutions and electoral bodies are important, and we engage in them, uh, you know whenever whenever possible." But Poances comes back and and responds, yes, you you engage in them in a way in which." Would then give you leverage to besiege the state at the appointed moment, at the appointed time when the dual power apparatus, the contra state, the workers' state, can sort of assault the bourgeois state. And the members that you have placed inside of the institutions will sort of help launch that attack, in essence. And so, even insofar as these revolutionary mm-hmm. socialists engage in state institutions, they're still sort of uh, have this vision that their aim is to attack it from the outside, to besiege it, to smash it, as it were. What do you make of this contemporary uh, manifestation of dual power? How, how has it been altered throughout the ages? And, and where does it kind of fall apart?
2: Well, I, I agree with you that that, that yeah. debate between, I'm going to call him Weber as well, Weber and uh, Polancus is really fascinating. And I, I think it goes to the heart of a lot of these these. Issues that are left unresolved, and I mean, essentially, what Polansas is saying is, drawing on what he was writing at the time, state power and socialism in his, in his final book before he defenestrated himself, is the the idea that this, the state is not a thing. You know, the state is not. It's not it's not he calls it he, he he talks about the leninist conception of dual powers as, as as basing mm-hmm. its strategy on on the conception of the fortress state, which is a thing mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. which you can remain totally external to and which you can kind of surround and besiege like a medieval army before kind of undermining it and and burning it to the ground and you know um, and that's that's the way that you overthrow bourgeois power but what um says, points out is that, in fact, that's not what the state is at all. The state is not a thing. Um, It's a set of relationships. It has a certain institutional materiality, it has certain apparatuses attached to it, but it's not a coherent, singular thing. It's not a subject. It doesn't have a point of view. It doesn't have one set of, you know, um, one one outlook on things. What what is it is, uh, you know, even within state apparatuses, you get... Turf wars between different departments, you get people with different ideological predispositions, you know, different sort of people from different parties elected. Uh, you get um, all sorts of differences within the state, all sorts of conflicts within the state, all sorts of snarl-ups and sort of inefficiencies and duplications within the state. And beyond that, state power itself, which the state apparatuses sort of concretize, is a social relation. So the state, in terms of state power, for, for Pulanzas condenses kind of the prevailing and ever-shifting balance of class forces in society. And it's reflected in state policy, in the way in which the state needs to react to, you know, various challenges, to various demands from different sort of uh, interest groups, etc., different class forces. And in that sense, you never outside of the states every social movement every kind of uh, struggle any kind of political economic struggle is always already articulated mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, within the field of state power so y- y- it makes no sense it's just a conceptual error to think like Henri Weber that you can somehow stay independent of the state and attack it from outside Because that's not that's not just not what the state is, and so this leads to a really sorry. Go on, yeah,
0: yeah. Sorry, uh, if sorry, I might just like play the normie and see if I can make sure that I'm understanding what you're saying. Like for those who are listening along, Um, if I may, is is the idea that's being presented there? So Weber is suggesting, or uh, tacitly endorsing the idea that the state is like this thing out there in the world which exists. It has, to one degree or another, a a kind of essentialized nature. There are Mm -hmm. qualitative aspects to it. and it's it's relatively static precluding obviously the, yeah. the changes that happen as part of any democratic process you know routinely or whatever um whereas yeah. polancus is suggesting that in fact no um the state is uh, uh, it is you and it is i and there is no unmediated thing out in the world known as the state it is the sum total of our collective and, and like mutually inextricable relations with one another. Um, And sure there are, there are institutional formations and courthouses and, you know, physical buildings and a bunch of bureaucrats and, you know, a corner, like a supply cupboard full of paper and paper clips that they take home with them for their kids and all the rest. But like, ultimately like it is not a thing out there in the world it is a set of ideas and almost fictions that we've all bought into collectively
2: yeah um, that's it i mean one, one way of thinking about it is polanyi's often makes this analogy is to think about the state in the same way that we have to think about capital hmm. right so so capital there are there are physical forms There's money as banknotes but that's not capital that's not the, that's not the you know what capital is in in you know in 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 total what is capital is capital you know can you see it is it is it a thing that you can definitely possess in your hand um yes and no you know you can hold money but money what is money is just the it's just sort of objects what 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 makes money money is the sort of social relations that embodies and the kind of collective fictions that we build up around it and live in our daily life, you know that that invest this thing or these things with a with a sort of some kind of int- what's apparently an intrinsic power, but it's not what it, what, what it's actually expressive is relations between people uh relations of exploitation you know re- relationships um articulated with uh, our our sort of place in terms of the of uh, the, the relations of production so it's the same with the state, you know it's um it's something much more complex than an object. It's 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 not a a fortress that stands on a hill somewhere that's totally impervious to the to the ordinary people, like we're kind of peasants with torches outside and pitchforks, sort of screaming at the state, stop oppressing me. That's not what the state is, state the state is already always already mm. kind of implicated, imbues our daily life, our practices, and we reproduce the state necessarily willingly but we we, we simply we, we live a relationship to power which which produces the state well
0: yeah like the default the default mode reproduces the state yeah. like if we do nothing we like it's set to mm-hmm. to roll mm-hmm. along effectively right but then, which is one one yeah, way to put certain, this is just yeah. to
1: simply say that the state concentrate is is the con- where power is concentrated in capitalist society um because what we're talking about here is power. We, we are subjects to power, subjects Ooh. of power.
0: Certain, forms, Certain and forms of power. Certain I mean, forms of power. I think
1: you know, power. the the there we could have a long, this drawn out discussion about class power, where it comes from, how it's, uh, you know, how it's articulated and through the state and all this stuff. Sorry, I'm. I glad- would just simply, I don't, I don't mean to skirt these issues, but, but just to say, like we have talked about these at length on Dead Pundit Society. And Amy, of course, you know this, and Ed, you do because you you were a part of it. But I would encourage folks uh, to go back and listen to uh, Ed and I's, uh, you know, previous interview. Go ahead and listen to the state and socialist strategy series that I replayed. In between season one and season two, we covered all of these things because I, I recognize we're not really talking about the capitalist state as as in, you know this kind of like arena for class struggle and class forces in capitalism and how in capitalism there are owners and there are workers and blah 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 and you know we, we're <laughs> really, really skipping over a lot of the ABCs of this argument and 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 uh, it's so difficult to talk about. One thing without talking about everything. But let's 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 spend the the next 15 to 20 minutes here. uh, We end up this A side and move into the B side by talking about uh, this distinction, I think, that revolutionary socialism makes uh, with this kind of final rupture, this mad, this final smashing of the state. And what Palancis uh, sort of takes Henri Weber to task on at one point Mm. is he sort of says, well, you revolutionary socialists nowadays understand and admittedly are playing something of a long game where there will be hopefully a series of mini ruptures that will then lead to this grand rupture per se. And Palancis sort of says, well, how is that any different than than what we're doing, what I'm doing, uh, what I'm proposing? Which you slander as incrementalism. So maybe spell out what what is incrementalism. What is the theory of rupture, and and how is there in practice not a whole lot of space between them in a certain kind of sense?
2: Well, that goes right to the heart, I think, of the the problem of socialist strategy. So it seems to me there there are two unconvincing answers to the problem of capitalist power and how you might seek to undermine it and the first is the sort of classic reformist gradualist strategy which is this idea that you can kind of gradually encroach on capitalist prerogatives but do so in a way that you know in which there's not really any crisis the whole thing goes very smoothly the capitalists agree to sort of gradually have their power eroded but somehow they, for some reason, keep on investing. <laughs> they play their part as long as and they need themselves, right? So they keep the economy <laughs> going. There's, yeah, absolutely. They just kind of, kind of classically agree to their own kind of abolition as a class, which of course is, is just theoretically absurd and practically absurd. But the other, I think, on the other end, um, there's an equal absurdity, which is this idea that you, you can sort of deal with the problem of capitalist power once and for all in one fell swoop, right, what you need to do is surround that fortress and raise it to the ground and problem solved, yeah? You just need you to surround the central locus of capitalist power, which is the state, and once you've dealt with that, um, it's all sort of more or less plain sailing because you've got the levers of power in your hands and you can then implement the socialisation of the economy. But that's clearly not really, seems to me anyway, it's not particularly feasible, Strategy, And I think that's, that's what Leninism in, in often boils down to. It's that idea that if you seize political power, right, you still seize the state, then somehow you gain control over the levers of power that will allow you to enact something like, kind of weirdly, a gradualist transition to socialism, where right? you gradually socialise the economy because you've got the, the political the levers of political power in your hand. But what that also does is it ends up not taking um doesn't take capitalist power seriously because capitalist power in as much as the state you know kind of condenses is the is the kind of locus point of the, the core site of power in, in in capitalist society it's not the only site of power and it seems to me that one of the reasons why the capitalist state is precisely a capitalist state is because the the capitalist economy um absolutely relies on um, capitalist investment; it relies on private investment. If there's no private investment, then you know accumulation slows down, growth slows down, there's all sorts of economic problems. And the, interestingly, this is precisely the problem that Lenin and his uh, the Soviet government ran into in the first few months and, and weeks of uh, of the revolution. Uh, it's not often kind of there in the the familiar narratives of the Russian Revolution, but what Lenin's conception of the transition was. Is that they would the, the, the workers and the peasants would take power politically, so by by taking the, the levers of political power out of the hands of the bourgeoisie, and then they would run a still predominantly capitalist economy in a phase that's, that that Lenin called state capitalism, which is essentially a, for, a form of heavily regulated capitalism in which there wouldn't actually be very much expropriation of big capital, and he expected the big industrialists, to keep on investing under a Soviet government, right? And, and they seem to be quite surprised, actually, that the big capitalists weren't particularly interested, you know, in ploughing their investment uh, into industries that were marked for eventual takeover by the Soviet government in the name of the people. You know, why would they? why would they? Why would they spend all that money on something that they're probably not going to get back? And so, there's the same problem that seems to me emerges in that sort of Leninist strategy that that, that emerges in terms of the reformist strategy, which is that you don't take the power of capital itself seriously as a a sort of economic form of power. And it seems to me that the the necessity of rupture, of some form of rupture, of some forms of ruptures, right, uh, is that at some point in the process of transition to socialism, you're going to need to take capital away from the capitalists, right? This should be obvious, but it's often, sometimes it's not obvious that you need to take away that veto power that capital has over um, social change. And the veto power it has is it can say, we don't like this policy. We don't like the way things are going, so we're going to not invest. We're going to organise a capital strike, or there's going to be a flight of capital, uh, or we're, we're going to let our firms run down, or we're going to try to to move our operations overseas. Unless you deal with that head on, then you're going to come cropper. So that well, does, if there I does may seem to be
0: head off. Yeah, <laughs> I think this is the point where <laughs> the guillotines come in.
2: Well, I don't agree with you there. <laughs> Touching to the line at guillotines, personally, but. Um, it does suggest that there will, there will be a moment of, and it's only one big moment, but there will certainly be the, the period of transition and that period of contestation um, between still existing capitalist power and the rising socialist power, if you like, yeah,
1: absolutely. will
2: be a period of economic crisis. It will be a period of turmoil. It will be a period of uh, unrest, of, of uncertainty. And at some point, there's going to need to be something like the nationalisation of the major means of production, right? Taking into into public ownership the major productive forces, including the banks, including capital. Now, the problem then is, well, how do you stop that from simply becoming a form of statism? You know, we don't want the state running the economy, from the top top down you want people to run their own firms you want this sort of you know this this you want economic democracy so that process of rupture would have to be accompanied by the emergence of uh, forms of economic democracy the emergence of a sort of democratic capacity building process amongst people where they're actually able to take on the management of the economy themselves through some kind of process of socialisation. That's going to be a messy process. It's not going to be smooth, but that it seems to me uh, is is a is a necessity. So, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we we end up right, right. in the kind of classical revolution. Exactly. So, I was
1: going to suggest there is that that's the economic contradiction, the political contradiction to seizing power in this sort of like. Uh, uh, you know, swift manner is that is that uh, it's the one faced by the Bolsheviks. It's the one faced in places like China and the uh, in Cambodia and in Cuba and other places like that. And some of those experiments are more laudable than others. Uh, I don't know many folks, not not my listeners certainly, who are going to champion Cambodia among them. But you know, Cuba had its aspects. Uh, China even had its aspect. You know, all the right, whatever. But, but they're they're faced with the central problem there is what do you do with with political dissent? What do you do? Do you, do you clamp down on you know uh, on heterodoxy in, in the realm of of politics? Do you clamp down on oppositional political parties? Do you clamp down on oppositional factions within the socialist or communist party? And and a lot of governments in reality have done that because when you face a kind of economic crisis, it's accompanied by a political crisis. And as Lenin sort of demonstrated in 1917 and 18 and 19, you need to have a kind of unity and resolve and purpose uh, to get yourself through the crisis. Which, in practice, means that some voices ultimately have to be ignored. And if you don't have means uh, of, of representative democracy and certain kind of institutional, found f- you know. Institutional foundations for mediating dissent and ensuring civil liberties, and all of these types of things, then you're in real trouble. And now we're at, we're we're in the midst of the debate that happened between Lenin and Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, so spell that out for us for folks who don't know, uh, yeah. who may not even have any understanding of the fact that that Luxemburg and Lenin uh, were at odds, uh, at, uh, you know, when it came to a very crucial question. Um, and, and and talk to us about how that relates. Uh, today, because just to, to signal ahead, you raise a really interesting point. When you start to when you start to tease out these contradictions of dual power, uh, what emerges uh, in the process of handling those contradictions in practice is something pretty close to what we're advocating, <laughs> right? It's when you when you rip away the mm. the ideology, uh, you, in practice, what you get. Is something that looks a whole lot like this kind of inside outside strategy where we sort of maintain a certain kind of democratic road to socialism that will require a series of ruptures, but a a transformation of the state from the inside um, facilitated by, by forces on the outside, so to speak. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, um,
2: yeah, that, that, that sort of um, the, the classic. Critique of uh, Bolshevik practice by Luxembourg. I mean, clearly, we, we can't right. we can't claim Rosa Luxembourg yeah. from the inside outside yeah, strategy. Yeah, yeah, for she sure, was, for sure. you know, <laughs> Very, very, you know, uh, very opposed to any form of parliamentary um, socialism sure, and kind of sure. very hostile to the bourgeois state. So, let'll you know, be clear there, but she she was bang on the money in terms of her critique of um, the practice of the Bolsheviks after the revolution, where was this kind of an exor- inexorable process of of clamping down, um, on various sorts of enemies of the people. And that's kind the, the, the sort of this, the range of people who became enemies of the people, you know, kind of inexorably grew and came to encompass mm-hmm. other socialists, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as much as, as much as the white armies. Um, and her critique of, of, uh, the Bolsheviks was that, um, she felt that, To 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 clamp down on civil liberties, political liberties. Uh, So clamp down. This is very strong. The freedom of the press, for example, not not in the kind of the bourgeois sense of defending the you know the big media moguls, but in terms of allowing different factions and political tendencies to have access to the printing press, for example, to be able to allow to distribute their literature. Her critique of the oppressive measures that the Bolsheviks took against. not just the uh, people they um, regarded as the, the bourgeoisie. So first of all, the, the, the franchise was restricted um, to to the working class. There was a kind of weighted voting system in the Soviets as well, where peasant, Soviets, pe- peasant votes essentially counted for less than those of the open proletariat. Because Lenin said, you know, the proletariat are the powerhouse of the revolution. We've got to make sure that because they're outnumbered by peasants, we need to make sure that their votes count for more than the peasant vote. But but also uh, there's um, a process of uh, making into enemies other socialist groups. So the Mensheviks, the Socialist Revolutionaries, um, and to be fair, the SRs do join the counter-revolution. You know, they they don't make it easy on themselves. Uh, the Mensheviks don't so much. Interestingly, they don't they don't really have anything to do with the Whites. Um, but they're still repressed. Uh, and and eventually, the left SRs are initially. Um, allies of the Bolsheviks, and they even have some places in Sovnarkom, a few ministers, and Len's never very, clear, very keen on it, but he of allows it. Um, and they're, they're all repressed uh, and clamped down on. And Luxembourg's criticism of this is that it stupefies the masses. Right? So if you don't allow people to debate, you don't allow differences of opinion, you don't allow uh, freedom of circulation of opinion in and, and the press and so on, um, the, the masses become um That they lose their access to information; they're no longer active agents in the process of their own liberation. They're just like cannon fodder for the party which knows best. Um, And I think that that tendency towards um, the one-party state in Russia um, is there from the beginning. You know, in in terms of in terms of Lenin's um, conception of communism and in terms of his conception of the role of the party as somehow interpreting the real interests of the people uh, which are kind of singular you know there's only one interest in the bolsheviks no, so, so why do you need more than one socialist why do you need more than one vanguard pe- party of the people you know if the class corresponds to the bolsheviks
1: then what the bolsheviks do corresponds to the interests of the class uh, yeah, well, I should mention, you know, Rigby opens up the preface in his, in his book, uh, Lenin's Government here. I mean, we forget about this. We think that this is all just kind of theory and stuff. But I mean, you know, the USSR was a state. Uh, they had a constitution. And, you know, Rigby uh, opens the book by quoting the constitution Ooh. of the USSR, which describes the Communist Party as, quote, the leading and directing force of Soviet society and the nucleus of its political system. Of all state organizations and all voluntary organizations, end quote. And Rigby says, in practical institutional terms, this means the superordination of the executive bodies of the party over those of the state at the center in the constituent republics and right down to the lowest level of local government. So effectively, you know, in in, in modern, quote, bourgeois states, we have the institutions which stand above political parties and political activity and the USSR, the the constitution, the party stood over top of the institutions. And I mean, that has a real, that has a real uh, practical, you know, this has real practical implications for what kind of society emerges and what kind of freedoms and Mm -hmm. democratic uh, orientations resolve, as you rightly pointed to. I mean, it's, it's on the one hand tragic, but not at all shocking that most of the members of of the uh, Sovnarkom, uh, the original uh, commissars uh, end up shot in uh, you know in sm- smelly basements uh, over the course of the Red Terror, uh, you know, or or thereafter in this in the show trials, you know, under Stalin, um, because there are, when when you put the party at the head of institutions. Um, it, it, it doesn't leave much of a safe space, <laughs> safe space for, uh, th- things like dissent mm. and, you know, um, other types of activities, but, but anyway, I've, I've gone on far enough for long, far enough for that. What do you, I mean, what do you make of that kind of uh, practical orientation of the party standing over the institutions rather than the institution standing over the party?
2: Yeah. That, that's some in some ways that's what, that's a process that Rigby traces in that book isn't, isn't it? So I mean, interestingly, Lenin never holds an official position in the Bolshevik uh, and the communist party. He's yeah, um, very much involved with the institutions really of government. Telling. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it does, it does seem to be uh, the case that in when he went, he goes through his kind of dark night of the soul in 1922 and he kind of realizes that there's a, a, a process of bureaucratization happening in the Soviet regime. We can't quite work out why it is. Um, and he does his best to try to prevent the drift of power away from Sovnarkom and the government ministry, the commissariat, uh, to, to the party, to the Politburo and the Org Bureau and the, the Central Committee. And he, he just doesn't have the strength to do it because he's very ill by, by that time. And so he kind of sees this coming, but he sees it coming too late. Uh, and the, and the, in a way, that one of the tragedies of Lenin is the way in which he himself sets this process in motion um, and there's that famous um, remark from Victor Serge, isn't there, on the potentialities of the Russian Revolution. The kind of anarchist, kind of he joined uh, Bolshevik, didn't he? he? Became kind of remained semi-critical. And when I, when I asked about whether Stalinism uh, was inevitable, he'd always say that the seeds of Stalinism were present from the beginning, but it doesn't mean that the the, the kind of you know, these were the only seeds that were present. It wasn't. It wasn't inexorable from the start, and that's often taken to kind of um, exonerate uh, the Bolsheviks. And most um, often, the kind of the established narrative of present-day Leninist is that, you know, the Bolsheviks meant well, but things went badly, and the kind of exigencies of civil war and the kind of in- intolerable suffering and hardship that people were going through. Uh, tragically degenerated the revolution and, you know, kind of twisted it and you end up with Stalin. Um, but what's Serge, what the other half of what Serge is saying is also important to bear in mind is that the, the seeds of Stalinism were present in Leninism. You know, it, it wasn't some kind of um, infection from outside that kind of, or some kind of parasite that kind of turned it into something grotesque. Um, those seeds were present. And I think you can see um, it, in, in the ease with which people like Lenin and Trotsky, for example, s- switch into ultra authoritarian pronouncements you know at the, the height of war communism particularly um, although interestingly the, the Bolshevik party the communist Party becomes much more intolerant in, under NEP under the new economic policy than it does on, is under war communism, which is kind of a weird paradox but anyway they they, they, they move all too easily into positions of saying things like there's no contradiction between uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat and uh, and the dictatorship of one person and uh, the, and Trotsky says things like it's the duty of the of the party uh, to maintain its sort of you know to maintain its line even in the face of the temporary vacillations of the working class the so working class can be wrong sometimes about its own interests and it's the party that knows best um the ease with which um Lenin moves to uh, economic one one man management in the nationalized factories the ease with which he uh simply um, sidelines the factory committees and workers' control in the factories suggests that it wasn't just a sort of a case of you know virtuous individuals who were tragically you know perverted by you know unbelievable pressures of Hardship. It, the, the, there was also something wrong about their outlook from the beginning, which eased that path towards what became Stalinism. That's my view. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And just to reiterate, I mean, I've said this earlier, and I think I, I, we, I think you agree with me here on this now. And, and is that you know this is not to say that Lenin was a bad guy. Right. That's not the point of all of this. Right. Like that would just be a, such a silly, uh, you know, such no. a silly, cheap kind of takeaway here um, in some senses. But anyway, but you see what I'm getting at. This is not about defending Lenin or about characterizing his his uh, abysmal and conservative social views. It's about understanding the position that managers of any state are put in when things break down. And what I'd like to ultimately get to at the end of this episode, which needs to come sooner rather than later, unfortunately, we're hitting at the hour and a half mark, is that uh, what I'd like to get to is that as socialists who seriously want to affect a socialist transition, the last thing that we should ever hope for is this is this kind of breakdown. Because, I mean, it, it puts you if you if you, if you would like to.
0: Can you be more precise, Adam?
1: What do you mean? Which Which kind? the kind that, that that the that the bolsheviks sort of uh, had to oversee um sure you know that, that it, it puts you in a place where you i'm not going to say you have to you don't have to do anything uh but you are potentially put in a place where you have to where 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 you are pressured where there are certain mm-hmm. imperatives to make decisions that none of us would want to make um, and I'm not sure that we We're also running reactive
0: and having to clean up messes exactly. as opposed to exactly. going in and creating something.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, coming around to the, the thesis of the episode and I think the, 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 the final sort of uh, clarion call, if you will, that I like to leave folks with is that like the notion of dual power, I think falls apart, not only historically and theoretically, but just strategically. It's kind of like, be careful what you wish for. You might, you just might get it. And what does that leave us with? Does that just leave us with this kind of, uh, you know, slow and steady and kind of boring and, 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 uh, uh, failure prone kind of inside outside democratic road to socialism? I would, I would say it does. I would say it does. That's all we have. Uh, there, I think this idea that there are, I put this to you, Ed. You know, I always say this. People ask me, like, well, what tendency do you think you're from? You, you belong to Adam. And I always say, like, I that doesn't that question doesn't make sense to me anymore. Um, I mean, you can you can sort of imagine yourself to be of this tendency or that tendency, but in, in terms of someone who just wants to see a socialist transition, I, I mean, there's only one capitalist state. That is my terrain of struggle. Um, I can imagine myself. I can frame it in a way that where I'm a libertarian socialist. No, no, no. I'm a I'm a I'm a this kind of socialist. I'm a that kind of communist. Um, but I'm not sure that that matters very much because the only thing that matters is what's actually in front of us, the actual terrain, the actual roadmap that we, that we, that we, that sort of dictates our, our, our activities and our, and our strategies. Um, what do you, what do you make of that kind of claim?
2: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm always, always very, very suspicious of people who come up to you. And the first thing they say is they announce what they're, what they are. What's my label? You know, I'm i I'm, I'm a libertarian communist or I'm a, I'm this or I'm that because I always think, well, are you really, and isn't this just a sort of posture adopting? Isn't this just uh, your identity that you're projecting? Right. So, so it's not really very interesting to me, um, the labels that people put on themselves. Um, but I think, um, I mean, what I'm coming back to again is, is that debate between Weber and Palanzas. Um And what, what really stands out to me about that interview is the way that Polanski quite fearlessly uh, says that he doesn't know the answer to certain questions. He's not sure. You know, Weber's saying, well, "What do you mean? What does, what does a rupture look like? What, what is it?" What? And, and, and Polanski says, "Well, you know, and I'm paraphrasing. Um, well, I don't know, uh, but you don't know either. We can't possibly know." Um, and there's this there's, there's a real a real, I mean there's something very obvious about that isn't there but and yet it's it sounds very wise <laughs> compared to the the air of absolute certainty that a lot of people seem to have particularly from very you know the sort of trotskyist tradition where they seem to be absolutely sure that they've got the main you know that the the main problems were solved a hundred years ago by Lenin and Trotsky, and all that remains is to kind of put those those ideas into operation you know um a bit like a cargo cult, uh, you know, where there's sort of uh, people uh, think that if you, you perform certain rituals and dress in a certain way and sort of encamp various slogans, then bounty will descend from heaven. It's almost the same kind of thing with this revolutionary strategy, you know. If we kind of, <coughs> excuse me, adopt the right line and we get the right name for ourselves and we expel the right people, then a rev, you know, the dual power situation. Will fall from the skies because we'll have created the conditions for its manifestation uh, you know on, on this world um, and I think in the end we're left with a tentative exploratory uh experimental strategy um, a strategy that Andrew Collier I think I might have mentioned last time we spoke briefly but he 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 has a i think a very very interesting Conception of Marxism and what he calls it's, it's, it's going to annoy some people, but the methodical conser- uh, methodological methodological conservatism of Marx, um, and what he says is that Marx isn't interested in utopias. He's not interested in realizing some ideal transcendent stra- uh, standard. Um, what he's interested in is the, the real movement of things, you know what's actually happening what are the actual balance of forces, what are the real potentialities that are inherent in the in the moment today and that, I think that's that's got to be the way that we operate. Um, we can't deal with abstractions we can't be imagining you know a, a dual power situation that will unfold in the same way that it did in russia we've got to start from where we are and where we are is a very different moment, and it involves campaigning for immediate demands for things that will immediately make people's lives better, that will immediately empower working class people, that will immediately build up the democratic capacities and the confidence of working class people. And seeing where that takes us and seeing how far you can push that process until you come up against insurmountable barriers and hopefully by that point you'll have, you know, built up some sort of resources. Uh, in order to be able to solve those problems when they emerge, whether or not it's the need for some kind of rupture or strategy um, of of, of uh, revolution or whether it's something else. But we can't know what that's going to be until we get there.
1: Right. I mean, that, that's that's the difference, I think, where the, this needle, we're trying to thread this needle, as I, as I like to say, uh, is, is, is that between this kind of uh, illusory, historically and theoretically speaking, this illusory dual power uh, uh, rupture, strategy on the one end and this kind of uh, social democratic incrementalism on the other end where we slowly but surely in a linear fashion work towards a socialist society Uh, what we what we have is a more kind of inside outside sort of uh, it's a it's at every phase of the game there are ruptures. Because that's what I think, you know. That's what the strategy of non-reformist reforms are really all is really all about. It's about producing uh, new capacities. And at each phase, at each phase of the game, it's not a stagist where first this, then that, then that, like a Pez dispenser, if you will. It's at each phase there are new. It's a it's a brand qualitatively new and distinctively different kind of uh, situation that you find yourself in because you have new capacities that were developed in the previous. Uh, Previous phase, mode, uh, whatever you want to call it, Uh, uh, you know, attack, uh, whatever. Right. Uh, You know, if at the end of this non reformist reform, uh, you know, we find ourselves with new capacities, new potentials, new resources inside and outside of the state, that was a little that was a kind of a rupture of a sort. That we are on a a different kind of qualitative uh, uh, level that we can intensify uh, again, you know, because we have new resources to be even more bold and even more. Uh, resolute and enhance and further the contradictions uh, of of capitalist society at each point. And so not to get too philosophical here, but I think I really do think the kind of like the the, our our notion of temporality and our understanding of historicity itself, like really needs to kind of shift in order to think our way outside of this, uh, this, this silly, this silly uh, false dichotomy.
2: Mm. Yeah. Without, I mean, without forgetting the essential problem with The classical reformist approach, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm I'm absolutely with you on all of that. I think you put that really, really lucidly. I'm going to nip that from you. Actually, I'm going to make sure I copy that down. Um, But I still think that we need to remember uh, that you can't sneak up on capital. You know what I mean? You you can't expropriate it without it noticing. So there's there's going to be confrontation. There is. Necessarily going to be some process of economic dislocation. You can't have a smooth kind of, you know, imperceptible transition. And, and that's
1: that's it. where that's the rocks that uh, that that reformism sort of uh, runs aground on. Is that is yeah. that if, if you are not in in engaging in those ruptures and building your capacities as, at each phase of the game, at the point when those reforms uh, are 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 incredibly uh, vulnerable and under attack, as I talked I talked about this. Um, with a couple, uh, a couple of my uh, guests, particularly Mike Beggs, a good political economist down there in Australia, as uh, you know, he he said, you know, at the height of power of the workers' movement in the 1970s, they were also the most vulnerable, and and yet they mm. they hadn't been focused on building the kinds of resources they would need to defend their positions, defend their gains, and then and then move on, uh, you know, to to the next. To the next kind of qualitative level, uh, and so they were very easily swept aside, um, in, in the neoliberal wave that would be inaugurated, uh, you know, at, in, in the midst of capitalist uh, economic crisis and political crisis that led to Thatcher and Reagan and, and all the rest of it. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I, whole, I wholeheartedly uh, agree with that. Um, and it's 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 fraught. It's it. But I guess you know this is a, this is a good place to end. Is that that's all there is? That's all there is. That's what we've got. You know, and I think this 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 choice between dual power or the democratic road to socialism that we're trying to sort of articulate here, uh, I think that's an illusory choice. And 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 what we need to do is we need to have an all hands on deck mentality uh, for approaching in a pragmatic, uh, so but but uh, principled, uh, you know, kind of a, a way. Um, yeah, I don't know, a- Amy, any final thoughts?
2: Um,
0: I think in part. As you mentioned, apparently Polansis was a, was a lawyer or a legal scholar prior to his state theory work. But to my mind, there's something really lucid in the way he speaks about the necessity of thinking through some of the potential pitfalls of any um, transformation. And so I just want to read a quick quote that really spoke to me. Um If we understand the democratic road to socialism and democratic socialism itself to involve, among other things, political and ideological pluralism, recognition of the role of universal suffrage, and extension and deepening of all political freedoms, including for opponents, then talk of smashing or destroying the state apparatus can be no more than a mere verbal trick. So I thought like in relation to what we were talking about earlier, that really yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of clicked for me, that like, there are so many factors that we need to think about in advance that to just sort of paper over them um, or imply that any like seizing of power necessarily solves these problems is is mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and, and so yeah. At, at the risk of saying something I shouldn't, um, there's, Go there's, <laughs> uh, this is something that, yeah, this is something that, that uh, there's a really great essay in, um, Ellen Maxon's Woods. I'm never sure it was Ellen or, or hey, it Ellen Mixon's Wood or Mixon's Woods. It Woods. Yeah, Okay, mm-hmm. M- Mixon's Woods. Um, The Retreat from Class, which involves actually the, um, the attribution of, uh, various, um, wrong turns to palantis which i think she's wrong about but, but anyway um in the later chapter she talks about the um the importance of um an inher- uh, uh, inheritance from the classical liberal tradition of its um emphasis on things like uh checks and balances on power and mm. things like uh, civil and political liberties and of course you, you know you can't Attribute a lot of those liberties to liberals themselves, and they are often creating struggle by working people and you know uh, and people who are disenfranchised. But at the same time, there is this kind of characteristic focus. For all its blindness and for all its sort of bad faith, in other words, ways in terms of you know economics and um, class power, there's there's a there's a really useful and valuable focus in the liberal tradition on liberties, you know, and, uh, yeah. uh, and on protections that we simply can't throw away as as being somehow in themselves inherently bourgeois that we won't need under a socialist uh, system. And that's something that, and you're right, maybe that's got something to do with Palancis' uh, legal background, but it's something that Palances is very, very sensitive to, particularly in his final work. And that's kind of, it's almost the kind of guiding principle of, um, of that famous final chapter in um, state and Socialism. Uh, where he sets out his his, um, his idea of this inside outside uh, strategy um uh, of of uh, a, a sort of non dual power pro- um, pro-
1: um process Right. This is a perfect transition. Um, we're going to move to the B-side now. Uh, we've been talking for nearly two hours. This has been an incredibly rich conversation. I've enjoyed it a lot. I, I hope that the listeners have learned in this process as much as I have in, in preparing for it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for you, uh, to you, Ed, for bringing this uh, Rigby book, uh, Lennon's Government, to my attention. It's, it's one that's hard to get a hold of. You can find it in libraries. It's rather expensive if you order it from booksellers online. Uh, but uh, folks should check it out. And uh, it really tells a different kind of history about this and it presents a new set of challenges, right? I mean, this isn't just about debunking Lenin or Leninism or dual power or whatever. It's about laying forward, you know, spelling out exactly what the challenges are for us. Um, and so that we don't put ourselves in a position like Lenin, where we have to, you know, act as the social reactionary and, 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 and suggest that we should deport all the sex workers or whatever uh, who are liquoring up our soldiers. Like, that's such a, you know what I mean? I mean we, we don't want to put ourselves in a position of managing a state that is in an absolute and utter crisis. Um, and so it's one of those be careful what you wish for moments. And I think that what Pulancis articulates is 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 this uh, much more careful democratic road to socialism which preserves the civil liberties and and the rights uh, that socialists should hold dear um yeah, the rights of sex workers and and and, and otherwise. <laughs> so, yeah, Ed Brooksby, thanks so much for joining us on the Dead Punnett Society. We're going to move to the B side now. If you're not a patron, you're missing out big time because we're going to talk about uh, the, the nuts and bolts of socialist strategy. And as always, we save our hottest hot takes for the patrons because we know that <laughs> you all are the ones who can uh, who are who are prepared uh, to handle them in good faith and, and, and grapple with them constructively. Uh, so head over to Patreon. Where else
0: are cowards? To be clear, We're also cowards, right? Yeah, I mean, well, there's a that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Who in this day and age, uh, you know, is not a little bit of a coward given the call out culture and the kind of social shaming if you step out uh, and, you know, and you, you go against the line of the church. Uh, shout out to Benjamin Studebaker. Uh, head over to Patreon.com slash Dead Pundits and subscribe to Dead Pundits to sign you get access to that B-side. So signing off. Ed, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you all over on the B-side.
0: Hi. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother.